Welcome to Blaine Christ the King. You are listening to our weekly service message podcast. Join us every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at our campus location in Blaine, Washington. Thanks for tuning in. So Christ came so we might have life and have it more abundantly. So when Tyler asked me about delivering the message today, and especially speaking about abundant life, my first thought was how exciting. What an interesting subject. Uh, This should be a lot of fun. But as I began my research, it turned out the most fun was asking friends how they describe abundant life. So think about it. What's abundant life? The American dream is to pursue what is called the good life. This usually means that owning your own home, having a couple of late model cars in your garage, taking nice vacations, retiring to a comfortable life of doing whatever you like. The rich and famous who supposedly enjoy this, uh, this good life are splashed across the pages of People magazine so that we can all vicariously enter their lives in dreams about striking it rich ourselves. Some modern teachers want us to believe that this refers to wealth and prosperity, so they urge people to go boldly before God and claim this, uh, uh, this promised abundance. To them, faith is measured by how much God blesses us materially. However, the God revealed in the Bible is not some big sugar daddy in the sky. Ready to give us everything we want, we may prayerfully sing, Oh, Lord, don't give me a Mercedes-Benz. And we might get it, but that doesn't mean God gave it to us. Jesus said that a man's life does not consist of abundance of the things that he might possess. But while many Americans who are financially comfortable may have achieved the good life, most of them have missed the abundant life that Jesus promised to all who follow him. Many who follow the prosperity gospel have just baptized the materialistic American dream with some Christian labels. But the abundant life that Jesus promised has nothing to do with collecting more stuff. It has everything to do with being right with God through faith in Christ and having the hope of eternity spent in his presence. The Apostle Paul wasn't rich in this world's good but he enjoyed the abundant life that Christ offers. He was content with just food and covering, but he was rich toward God. He gained those riches by coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our text today, Jesus claims to be the door through which his sheep enter to experience the abundant life. Jesus begins with truly, truly to alert us that what follows is important. So the reading will be on the screen here. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Let's unpack this reading to provide some context of the day. 
Society at the time of our Lord was largely agricultural. The domesticated animals of Jesus' day included cattle, sheep, goats, camels, horses, chickens, and others. While his lessons concerned the characteristics of his followers, he could have chosen any of these animals. It's interesting he chose sheep to illustrate what his followers should be like. Sheep are not like goats, cows, or horses. Even though there are differences between breeds and differences between individual sheep, sheep have traits, characteristics, behaviors, and feelings that make them an excellent illustration of the collective Christian mind. For example, sheep like to stay together. They follow one another as in flocks of sheep. Sheep are pretty, uh, generally, pretty conservative. They like the familiar, resisting change. And shepherds took care of their sheep from finding them, or finding water and grass to feed. They recognized their shepherd's voice and were known for their obedience. Shepherds could separate their sheep from others simply by calling them. Sheep didn't like strangers. They would run away. So in verse 8, it reads, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. In the day, kings and emperors and some of the leading Pharisees claimed to be the chief shepherd of the people. They used this chief shepherd metaphor to give people the idea they would be taken care of. Have you heard this before? Some things don't change even after 2,000 years. But in this case, Jesus is saying they are like thieves and robbers because they are more interested in their own riches than really taking care of the people. In the next verse, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. Shepherds made sure his sheep were protected, especially at night, and kept him in a sheep pen. Now, a sheep pen was a safe place uh, for his flock. It was a place where the shepherd would bring in his sheep at the end of the day, and they would be safe from the wild animals. Here's a photo of an animal pen when uh, taken when Monique and I were in a small village in northern Kenya. I had to end up getting it. Uh, built with very, very high walls. At night, they would bring in the animals. Uh, it would protect the uh, animals from lions and hyenas that actually would, uh, would come around for an easy meal. There was one door. The only way in or out of the pen was guarded by the shepherd. For the sheep, it was home. The thief here who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy is the evil one. It's Satan who is the thief who comes to take advantage of us, pull us away from Jesus. Satan does his best to derail us, to think of this world, not heaven, how we, how we can make more money, go after that promotion at all costs, look for a bigger house, bigger car, nicer car. Jesus is our shepherd, protecting us and taking care of us. The last sentence in our reading is, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The New Living Translation reads, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. So what is Jesus saying here? What is abundant life? 
In his recent uh, bestseller book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer wrote about the great enemy of spiritual life, hurry. John Comer says as the pastor of Bridgetown Church, a church that's actually a city church in downtown Portland, and he's the author of many, uh, several books. A former pastor of a rapidly growing megachurch, Mark claimed he felt out of control, not having enough time for family or faith. So Mark begins his story by talking to his friend and mentor, John Ortberg. As some of you know, John Ortberg is a uh, very famous Christian author, speaker. He's a senior pastor of the Menlo Church in Menlo Park, California. And Mark called John Ortberg to get some advice about being crazy busy. John repeats his own story about meetings and phone calls with one of John's mentors, the late Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard is a famed philosopher, writer, considered one of the leading Christian thinkers of the last century. John says he's talking to Dallas Willard, and he asks him, what do I need to do to become the me I want to be? Let me say that again. What do I need to do to become the me I want to be? There's a long silence on the end of the the line, according to John. With Willard, there was always a long silence at the end of the line. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John thinks this is absolutely brilliant. Another long silence. Okay, what else? Another silence. Willard says there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. How would you answer that question? I bet very few of us would default to hurry as our answer. Like Kummer wrote, but read the Bible Satan doesn't show up as a demon with a pitchfork and a gravelly smoker voice. He's far more intelligent than we give him credit for. Today, we're far more likely to run into the enemy in the form of an alert on your phone while you're reading your Bible or a Netflix binge or a full-on addiction to Instagram or Facebook or a Saturday morning at the office or another soccer game on Sunday or commitment after commitment. You know, another Christian writer, Corey Ten Book, once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's truth in that. Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. So what do people normally answer when you ask the customary, how are you? Oh, good. Just busy. We say that as a badge of honor. God did not create busy. This new speed of life isn't Christian, it's anti-Christian. The highest value in Christ's economy was love. Jesus made that crystal clear, clear when he said, hey, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Hurry and love are incompatible. Love is time-consuming. Parents know this, as do lovers and long-term friends. A recent study 
found that the average iPhone user touches his or her phone 2,617 times a day. Each user is on his or her phone for two and a half hours, over 76 sessions. And that's just part of a normal daily routine. We're so busy with running from meeting to meeting to running errands and items in between. When we finally arrive to pick up the kids, run to the grocery store or arrive home for dinner, our mind is absorbed in other things. Our patience is short and love is a distant thought. In this abundant life, when Jesus said, I have come that we may have life and have it to the full, is this what Jesus meant? You know, I think not. When I think of Jesus and abundant life, it's a story of Jesus and the woman at the well that comes to mind. Let me read it here. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews do not refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew. I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? Besides, you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anybody who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, she, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So the story begins with Jesus sitting by the well. It's in the middle of the day, it's hot, and a Samaritan woman comes to the well by herself, and Jesus speaks to her. This is crazy. She's taken by complete surprise. Her thoughts must have been running wild, absolutely true shock. Why? First of all, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. Oil and water, no respect or love. The second was, it was a patriarchal society. Men didn't talk to women in public. And because this woman was by herself in the middle of the day when the sun was at its peak and very hot, it was very strange. Women of that time would have come down early in the morning to draw water and they would have come down together, never by themselves. This Samaritan woman was a social outcast, estranged from her community. As we learned, she had five husbands and was not married to the man she was living with. Here Jesus reaches across every barrier, racial, gender, social, and moral. 
Jesus says, I have come to give you living water. Water is essential that we need to live. In fact, it's probably the most important. So if we are thirsty for water, it's uncomfortable. If we really crave water, eh, we might be in agony. But if we are incredibly thirsty and water deprived, when we finally taste that water, it tastes so sweet. What is this living water? Jesus says, I've got something that your soul needs as profound as your body needs water. I've got something that is sweet to your soul as water to a parched mouth. And what is it? It's eternal life. Eternal life is through the Spirit's power of assurance and experience of God's love, pardon, presence, and grace. So Tim Keller wrote about real pervasive change has to happen through God's grace, not through willpower. We may decide we need to change, so we bring in a technique, a discipline, a rule. I say, I will abide by this rule, and sometimes this works. But when a law or rule comes into our lives, it comes in despite our desires. But when the living water comes into our lives, when the love of Jesus, his pardon, his presence, his grace comes into our life, it satisfies our deepest desires. You can please the law giver because you have to, but you please Jesus, the grace giver, because you want to. Grace grows to the bottom of your heart. There are lots of books, videos, and material written about how to change your life. Essentially, it comes down to two different ideas. First is what I call old school. We summon our mind and reason and let it control our passion. We change through willpower. We think and analyze what we need, disregarding any feelings and change through sheer willpower. It's almost opposite today. If we want to change our life, modern people look at their emotions, see their strongest and desires and feelings, express those strongest desires and feelings so that you can become your true and authentic self. The old school says you stifle those feelings and change through willpower while modern people say you need to express those feelings, realize those dreams in order to become your true self. Tim Keller says neither are gospel change. Both are superficial. One goes to the will, the other one to the emotion, but neither goes to the heart. Interesting. So let's go back to the reading. Jesus responds to the woman when she asked for the living water, and Jesus says, go get your husband strange comeback for Jesus. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know, you've had five, and the man you're living with is not your husband. What is Jesus doing here? Is he trying to change the subject? No, what Jesus is saying is that if you really want to understand what I'm talking about, understand this living water, which is the deepest, most profound soul satisfaction Jesus is saying to her, you need to realize you're, you're already trying to find it, trying to dig wells, looking for it, but you're doing it in men. And if you try to find deep soul satisfaction that only Jesus can offer, if you try to find it in anything else in the world, such as money, status, romance, title, or, or marriage, children, or men, or women, or anything else, 
you will thirst again. It will be husband after husband after husband, career after career after career, or more money after more money after more money, and you will be enslaved. Why? Because all the things you look for, all the things for what I can give you only, they'll make you earn it. They'll make you earn it and will never be enough. I'm the only source, Jesus says, of the living water and the only source of soul satisfaction that won't make you earn it. It's a gift of grace. Jesus gives this total soul satisfaction, this living water, so that we may have abundant life. While Jesus was always there to give us abundant life, there are times in our lives where we take our eyes off this gift. Looking back, there was a time during my own career that I, where I lost sight of abundant life. For me, it was making choices, making decisions based on this world and what I wanted. I knew what was best. Decisions that were rooted in status, ego, and pride. As someone who has worked in technology, my decisions were more, were more about what companies to work for and job titles. So thinking that I would go back to work with Microsoft or get a senior position with Amazon or launch a new company in a growing market, you know, as time went on, my disappointment grew, pride took a major hit, as did my ego. You know, a good friend has the best description for major disappointment. We call being paws up in the ditch. So there I was, paws up in the ditch, and finally turning it over to Jesus. This wasn't a prayer request. This was on my knees, admitting to Jesus I couldn't do it myself. Jesus needed to drive the bus. What followed was a change, not a forced will or strongest desires, but a change in my heart, a willingness to let Jesus lead. Now, as I look back now, there was a sense of peace and a sense of purpose that happened. It was realizing that Jesus loved me and has a strategy and a plan that far exceeds my capabilities. I took on a willingness and openness accept his terms. No more trying to negotiate with Jesus. If he wanted me to go through a different door, he needed to make it abundantly clear. Can't say I'm the brightest lamp in the room. And finally, I found clarity in who I was, my gifts. Not long after, Jesus gave me one of those aha moments, revealing that I was in the right path. So Jesus came so we might have love and have it more abundantly. The phrase more abundantly is the Greek word parasos, meaning beyond, more, above measure. It refers back to the word life. Not only does Jesus promise a future abundant life, but he also gives it to us now. He lives his life within us right now. His very presence in us adds something immeasurable to our existence. He is what makes our life worth living in spite of how much money we have or don't have in the bank. If we read the whole passage of John, we see it's about Jesus being our shepherd. Hearing his voice, 
and Jesus being our open door. It's about having a positive relationship with God, and that is what the more abundant life is all about. Not only do we get eternal life, but as an added bonus, we have the opportunity to build the relationship with Jesus Christ, the very one who makes it possible. Man views abundance in terms of physical possession. God has a different perspective. His abundant life is filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, fruits of the Holy Spirit, and a relationship with him. In other words, the more abundant life is full of the, all the things money can't buy, abundant life is a gift of grace. The more we open our hearts to God, the more abundant our lives will be. Let me close in prayer. So Jesus, we come before you thirsting for your living water, water that feeds our soul and leads to a rich and satisfying life with you. This gift of grace is beyond anything we deserve or could ever ask for. Thank you, Jesus. So as we leave today and begin a new year, we pray that you will guide us, protect us, and be the good shepherd that we can follow daily. So for this we ask in your glorious name.